welcome to Christ and Kingdom. This is our very first podcast. I am Ryan Musselman. I'm joined by Pastor Emilio Ramos. What's up, Emilio? Yeah, you certainly are, brother. I'm here. I'm, I'm here with you, brother, for the ride. I'm excited. <laughs> it's going to be a fun ride. We've got, well, we've got a lot of topics to cover. And knowing you, we like to get right into it and we like to go really deep with it. So why don't you kick us off with maybe some high yeah. level themes of what we'll be jumping into. And then throughout this first episode, what I'll do is just ask you a couple of questions that unpack more of it. So our listeners yeah. can start to understand what they'll expect in future episodes. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. So, you know, uh, for those of you, uh, that, uh, know about Red Grace Media, uh, welcome back. I hope that you'll enjoy this podcast. I think it's going to be a good time of exploring, uh, you know, theology, apologetics, as well as Christ and culture themes and things like that, that we've always covered. Um, you know, Christ and Kingdom originated on a video podcast that I started really a, a video, uh, a YouTube program where I was covering these kind of topics and stuff like that. But we want to transition into podcasting. Not that we're going to leave video behind, but we want to podcast as well uh, and really just dedicate time to getting into substance substantive things uh, like uh, apologetics and evangelism, what we're going to look at these topics a little bit more in depth today, um, and really try to understand uh, apologetics from a robust uh, biblical and reformed position, as well as the theme that, you know, I know, Ryan, you like biblical theology very much. I do too. But we'll talk about biblical theology and eschatology and, and flesh those kinds of things out. Obviously, our biblical theology uh, is tracing all of the story of scripture, the storyline of the Bible, and how it all organically goes together. We'll talk about that. But biblical theology is is really high on our on our list of of theology that we want to explore and examine and 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 just really, really dive into because it's so edifying, number one, but it's also very important for the Christian life for you to understand how all scripture goes together and how it all points to Christ and how it all contributes to the overall plan of God. Uh, but also, man, Reformed theology and covenant theology are just, you know, these are issues that need to be really, really reiterated, reaffirmed, established. I'm finding, I don't know about you, Ryan, but I'm finding that a lot of Christians um, are really uh, sort of deviating away from the importance of something like covenant theology because they're getting very, um, they're getting fascinated with topics like, you know, good stuff, apologetics, evangelism, Christ and culture, you know, things like that. Uh, but they're not understanding the foundation of all of our theology and how important covenant theology is to something like that. And conversely, talking about Reformed theology in general, we want to make the case, and I'm going to make the case, uh, that the kind of theology that we want, the kind of ap apologetics that we want, for example, today we'll talk a little bit about the doctrine of God. Is there a doctrine of God, a doctrine of the Trinity that is distinctly reformed? That's a big question. I would say yes. So we need to articulate a consistent world and life view. And that, you know, that doesn't always, um, that doesn't always happen automatically for people. I think sometimes we approach theology where everything is disjointed. It's kind of like separate topics and people struggle how to put them all together in one coherent worldview, one system of theology. So that becomes very important. And then maybe one of the hallmarks of Red Grace Media, certainly of my theology, is going to be pilgrim theology. So we're going to have to tease that out and explain 
explore kind of what that's all about. So these are some of the issues we're going to talk about on this podcast. And that's not to say that things won't come up, Ryan, right? Like in the church and the culture, we'll have to, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll want to maybe address something very directly that is contemporary and something that needs to be talked about right away. If, uh, if something like that comes up and I just really feel a burden to do that. So yeah, this podcast is going to cover all the topics and sometimes we're going to do series of topics and we're also going to do interviews. So, you know, we'll have guests on, uh, I know I'm scheduled to do a, a lengthy, uh, a lengthy in-depth, uh, uh, sort of a podcast series with, uh, Dr. Lane Tipton, for example, on the doctrine of God on Van Til and the Trinity, and that stuff is going to be just dynamite. So a lot of stuff going on. It's going to be action-packed, no doubt. And it'll always go deep in, in the knowledge with all of these topics. There's always a good takeaway, something that someone can apply and listen to and listen again to and, and learn and share. So why don't we start with apologetics? That's usually a wonderful place to start in the Christian worldview. But you have always done apologetics uh, in its most raw form, but also from the new apologetics, just maybe a hat tip back to what you've been working on in Red yeah. Grace Media. Can you just talk about how apologetics has really began to change over time and what we need to be yeah. thinking about in being an apologist, a Christian apologist with a Christian worldview today? Yeah, no, that's excellent. And notice, you know, when we talk about apologetics, it's apologetics and evangelism. Those those go together because to me, there's no such thing as apologetics without evangelism, right? Mm -hmm. In one mm -hmm. sense, right? Like scripture doesn't use the word apologetics. The closest we get is the term apologia, which is mm -hmm. a defense, uh, which speaks of giving a defense, right? Or something like that, which uh, the word can also speak of giving an argument. But really, uh, evangelism is really the task. So apologetics is really just a means to an end. We're not mm -hmm. simply to study apologetics to try to defend our position or try to argue for a position. What we're doing in all apologetics is we're paving the way for the gospel. It's all about communicating the gospel. And, um, you know, I was just in an elders meeting, uh, Ryan. Uh, you'll appreciate this because this has to do with, <laughs> with what's going on at our church, brother. And, uh, uh, you know, for those that don't know, Ryan, uh, you know, has been a member of our church for a while, has been serving and hopefully we'll continue to serve in many ways in our church and uh, looking forward to everything you're doing at our church. Awesome. But at Heritage Grace, you know, we're getting ready to um, put together a whole Sunday school curriculum uh, on the gospel. And the simple burden of that is going to be to define what is the gospel, right? Because I think uh, very easily we can get away from a biblical articulation of the gospel. And so that we lose the necessary components for an authentic gospel articulation and an authentic gospel call. I mean, that's what apologetics is all about. Now, when we think about apologetics, there too, you know, Ryan, we want to talk about apologetics, but we want to talk about apologetics in such a way that, um, you know, that, that apologetics, again, is not, uh, it's not a, a discipline on its own, that it's not just kind of out on its own, doing its own thing, divorced from our theology. Um, I know, you know, the way that a lot of uh, a presuppositional apologetic apologists have said it, you know, but 
as you look at the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, there he is in his evangelistic work, there he is doing missions, there he is among the Athenians and the pagans, right? And he's doing like nitty gritty evangelism in the marketplace with people who happen to be there, right? But his missionary endeavors are not divorced from his theological endeavors. So the Paul, the Paul of Acts 17 is the Paul of Romans 1. There's no there's no separating the two, you see? Uh, and so we have, to, we have to establish a theologically driven apologetic. And what is that theology? Well, of course, that theology is best situated in reformed theology. So I think that's what's important, Ryan, to, to really be able to articulate a Christian defense of the faith, to quote Van Til, <laughs> uh, but that is rooted in historic reform theology. I think that hopefully that's going to be uh, kind of what sets us apart um, as we continue to go down the path of different topics on apologetics. And I really appreciate how you said that too, because the word apologia, when it's mentioned in First Peter 3.15 and the overarching context has a lot to do, and correct me if I'm wrong here, with pilgrim theology, right? He's writing to the the diaspora, the the people who are believers and they're dispersed, but it's in the context of suffering. And so a defense of the faith in the context of suffering for the gospel, for being a believer. And when I was in the seeker sensitive movement, I didn't learn it like that. I learned it as evidentialism and uh, you know, proof of God, proof of the resurrection and uh, proof of scripture, all great things. But um, you gave it a more holistic definition that I think is really important for us to unpack as, as we go through that topic. Yeah, amen. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Pilgrim theology is the context of First Peter. I mean, that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. It's writing, writing to believers that are pilgrims in this world. And the imperative is to set, sanctify Christ in your heart as Lord. And so that as pilgrims, right, our ultimate allegiance is to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing all the while that we are simply strangers passing through a strange land and that that is what the apologetics and evangelism task is all about, right? Engaged, mm -hmm. engaged in the issues, engaged in the culture, engaged in evangelism, but all the while doing that as pilgrims. I love it. Awesome. Yeah. Let's move on yeah. to biblical theology and eschatology, another great grouping together. And if you've never heard of biblical theology before, Mila, you kind of covered it at the very beginning, but could you just rehash the definition of it and and go into a little bit about why that topic, especially for you and I who, who love that topic, why it's so exciting to study what it's actually covering, what it means, and just unpack some of those themes for, for some of our newer listeners who maybe have not given a lot of thought to biblical theology. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, brother, biblical theology is so remarkable. Um, I know that when people hear the word biblical theology, right, we're not saying that your theology is biblical in the sense that your theology is sound. Okay, <laughs> it's just like what? Well, what kind of theology do you want? Unbiblical theology? <laughs> we don't want unbiblical theology, right? So that's not what theologians are talking about, right? Biblical theology is the discipline of looking at the Bible organically, holistically, as one story, one unit of thought. It ultimately is owing to the one author of Scripture, which is God. And Gerhardus Voss, who is known as the modern 
father of biblical theology, you know, looked at biblical theology essentially as a subset of divine revelation, that God has revealed himself in scripture in such a way that what we're looking at is one organic unity of thought, one storyline, one ultimate redemptive history tied together by all the different parts, what he called the multiformity of scripture, by all the different parts. Nevertheless, all those parts are all contributing to the center, which is Christ and his kingdom. Pardon the pun. But, you know, <laughs> that, that really is. I mean, when you think about biblical theology, a lot of people are talking about, well, what's the Bible all about? What's the entire Bible about? That's what people are doing in a biblical theology. You know, there's different approaches to biblical theology. Some people, well, biblical theology is about introducing the main themes of the Bible. A biblical theology is looking at each individual author of the Bible and his corpus, his body of literature. And that from that body of literature, you have a distinct theology. Like there's Johannine theology, there's Pauline theology, there's Petrine theology, there's Lucan theology, right? But um, that that is more... Uh, that is more a biblical theology that is concerned with, you know, uh, a background information with bibliology, trying to understand the structure of the Bible and, 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 and really doesn't quite uh, get to what biblical theology means to me and to reform biblical theologians like Gerhardus Voss, Meredith Klein, G.K. Beale, Benjamin Glad, a lot, a lot of guys, Graham Goldsworthy, a lot of these men who, what their main, I, main burden is, is to point out not only the organic unity of the Bible, but what are the central themes. So G.K. Beale would say the central theme of biblical theology is the new creation. And I think he's right. I think the new creation is essential uh, for understanding what the whole Bible is really uh, kind of heading towards and what's leading out to. Let me say one more thing, uh, Ryan, on that. And that's that biblical theology, we can make a case, biblical theology is really nothing more than the fleshing out of covenant theology. To understand that God's covenantal working in the world is lived out in redemptive history, and all of scripture is connected to those covenantal uh, those covenantal ideas and themes and, and the structure of the Bible being covenantal. So covenant theology and biblical theology very go very close hand in hand. So that's really, really, really important. And biblical theology is so incredible because it's so vast, like it's so comprehensive. Uh, it helps you to go from one section of your Bible to literally without exaggerating to virtually every other section of the Bible. And biblical theology just helps to highlight the intertextuality of the Bible, how all the Bible is textually interconnected. And uh, the reformers understood this, and that's why they, the reformers, you know, they, they um, identified their hermeneutic as, as the analogy of the faith, the analogia fide, because they understood this is the analogy of the faith, basically means that scripture is its own analog. That it's scripture interacting with scripture, scripture quoting scripture, mirroring, mirroring scripture, and scripture proving scripture. That's what it's all about. Biblical theology really, really brings that, all of that home. And so, I mean, you know, as you and I, you know, have talked about many times, I mean, there's so many ways we can go with that. I mean, but you mentioned eschatology. Uh, eschatology 
is at the very heart of biblical theology. Biblical theology is saying the Bible is an eschatological book. It is telling us how we're going from creation, right, to new creation. It's almost like, like, you know, like if you're, if, if anybody asks you, like, what's the Bible about? You would not be wrong to tell them the Bible is about how God is taking the world from the original creation to a new creation. And that would be a very accurate way of describing the, the, the general thrust of biblical theology. And that is essentially eschatology right there, right? So for a lot of people, eschatology tends to be, well, debating about the millennium or uh, the timing of Christ's return, or is there a rapture, right? But really biblical eschatology permeates all of scripture and we certainly want to talk about those kind of topics uh, as well. Mm. That would be a rich, rich episode when we get in there. I, we might have to cover multiple episodes just from all the different viewpoints and and, and touching on different areas. We'll we'll figure out how to cut the cat when when we get there. You started to dive into covenant theology a little bit. And, and I think it's important that we go a little bit deeper there and unpack that. It's just so closely related to, to biblical theology. So let's dive into Reformed theology and covenant theology. And if you could give us an overview of where we're headed and some of the, maybe yeah. some of the themes there that, that you think are going to be really important for us to at least start with and, and press on. Yeah, this gets to something that, you know, um, I've mentioned to you already, and that is kind of the burden that I have for reform theology that, you know, in our modern context, in light of, let's say the development of the last couple of decades, last two, three decades, the emergence and resurgence of Calvinism, the emergence and resurgence of you know, Calvinist thought, Puritan literature, and then the young, restless, and reformed movement that happened in the late 90s into the early 2000s, right? And that what that resulted in is mainly people adopting Calvinistic things, uh, Calvinistic doctrines, Calvinistic teachings, and going to Calvinist theologians for various things. But when we think about what Reformed theology is, somebody just texted me and they said, can you tell me what Reformed theology, how would you define Reformed theology? And I said, well, the first thing to know is that Reformed theology is not synonymous with Calvinism. At least Calvinism does not equal Reformed theology. Reformed theology is much broader than that. Reformed theology is much more comprehensive. Calvinism is simply a subset of Reformed theology. In one sense, Calvinism is sort of the ABCs of Christianity, <laughs> right? I mean, it was the great Charles Spurgeon who said, calling, calling the doctrines of grace Calvinism, he says, it's just a nickname. It's just the gospel. That's all we're talking about, right? It's a nickname for the gospel, he said. And that's exactly right. But Reformed theology is a comprehensive worldview that, uh, that attaches to every doctrine of Christendom, not just teachings about the sovereignty of God, not just teachings about soteriology and how God, you know, and how people are saved, but everything. So under the rubric of Reformed theology, this is the vision that I would like us to recover, is this rubric of having a distinct Reformed doctrine 
of God, a distinct reformed doctrine of the Trinity, a distinct reformed doctrine of the covenant, a distinct reformed doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of revelation. I mean, these are all, when you get to these subjects, what people have to understand is that when you get to some of these subjects, you have decisions to make. What doctrine of revelation are you going to adopt? Are you going to adopt the Thomistic understanding of revelation and go off into natural theology? Are you going to adopt a modernist interpre- interpretation of revelation, adopt a, a Bardian, Karl Barth's uh, view of, of scripture, basically reducing it to something like existentialism, experientialism, the scripture kind of becomes the word of God to you, okay? Because God only reveals himself to Jesus Christ, according to Barth. Okay, so we have decisions to make. What is the doctrine of revelation and how can we have a distinctly reformed understanding of the doctrine of how God reveals himself? I mean, that's so incredibly important. But I would say, man, if I had to define what is reformed theology, I would say reformed theology is first and foremost a belief in covenant theology. It is the belief that God has made a covenant in a Trinitarian council, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the covenant of redemption, in you know, in the bowels of eternity, the Trinitarian, the members of the Trinity have covenanted together and have made a sacred bond in the sense, sacred oath, and have a sacred agreement as to the objects and the means and the goal of redemption. Okay. Uh, and then covenant theology, of course, extends into two major covenantal administrations. One is the covenant of works in Adam mainly symbolized by Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. The other one is the covenant of grace, which is the covenant of the mediator or the the mediatorial work of Christ, that through a mediator, God is going to save a people by grace through faith. And that, of course, going back to what is promised in Genesis 3, 15, and then developed throughout all other covenants and, and until we arrive at the apex of the manifestation of that grace and of that salvation in the new covenant. And so that is really kind of like where you need to go to understand what is reformed theology? What is covenant theology? How do those things relate? But so important, Brian, like one of the, one of the burdens I have in talking about uh, reformed covenant theology, for example, is that in a lot of places of Christianity, we're losing our grip on the covenant of works. That's just one example. Like the covenant of works is, under fire. There are people coming from the new covenant theology perspective. They view that the situation in the garden is really a mixture of works and grace, that there's really a mixture of those two principles that Adam is acting out under grace and some work, some obligation. That is a very messy, messy way to approach biblical federalism that Adam is our federal head and that what was expected of him belonged strictly to the principle of works in the covenant of creation in the covenant of, of works. Some people call it the covenant of creation to stress, you know, kind of when it happened. Some people call it the covenant of life, kind of stress what was at stake eternal life. And then some people identified as the covenant of works to really try to uh, uh, really try to capture the essence of Adam's situation, that he was bound by oath to obey. 
He must obey the words, the commands of God. And pending obedience, perfect, personal, exhaustive, entire obedience, right, to the law of God, then Adam, as is indicated by the tree of life and the Sabbath, he would have entered into a higher mode of existence, a higher mode of life. Now, that basic structure of how we understand not only, um, you know, not only Adam, but humanity advancing forward and upward into eternal life. That basic structure, Ryan, is being uh, incredibly, incredibly muddled and compromised. Uh, and so as we think about Reformed theology and covenant theology, we, you know, this is kind of like me saying we have to hold the line. I mean, we have to hold the line because mm. the pro- the proposals that are out there, in my opinion, are just sub-biblical and result in all sorts of all sorts of um, consequences and ideas and 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 all all sorts of you know uh, things that are untenable that you cannot hold. Specifically, when you're talking about how we bridge the gap between the federalism of Adam and the federalism of Christ you're in some very, very dangerous waters at that point when you don't, you know, you've heard me say this before, Ryan, when you don't understand Adam one, you will not understand Adam two. And so we have to get the federalism of scripture right. And so that's, that's important. And just a quick question, where is this muddling coming from between the works and the grace kind of co-mingling there? Because as you read it initially, you see that Adam fails in, in this covenant of works and then there's grace when God comes walking in the garden and a substitute is, you know, there's a substitute and God covers. So where's the muddling coming from? Am I even on that same uh, landscape of, of what you're talking about there? Yeah, no, that's a good question. See, that's the thing is when we begin to tinker around and deviate from let's let's just say, let's just take historic uh, statements that have been made on the covenant of works, covenant of grace, pr- primarily in the confessions, right, and the theologians of the Reformation. So you have the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession, for example, but mainly the Westminster, articulating very very clearly that God created a covenant of works with Adam. But outside of that proposal, you really, in my opinion, you really only have two options. You either have the Roman Catholic option, which there you're talking about Thomas's understanding of nature and grace uh, and, and, and uh, the nature of revelation, the nature of Adam, his anthropology, and that relationship that he had between God. So the relationship between God and man in Thomas Aquinas and in the Roman Catholic conception is completely different than Reformed theology. Okay. Uh, absolutely different. Uh, Adam is a creature of the dust that does not know God. Uh, he does not know God immediately. He has no knowledge of God and he's not in a righteous religious fellowship with God apart from grace from the beginning. So from the beginning, Adam is already, uh, already in need of grace, even though he's done nothing wrong. And then other conceptions of that would be like modernist conceptions, which is ultimately represented by Karl Barth. Karl Barth insisting that everything that Adam had in the beginning was by grace. He had absolutely no way to merit anything from God. Okay. Again, that confuses <laughs> if Adam couldn't merit anything from God, well, maybe Christ couldn't merit anything from God. If, if Adam one 
was supplied by nothing but grace, then maybe Jesus didn't earn anything either because he was operating strictly by grace. See, these are the problems that you get into, but clearly in the Bible, clearly we are told that Jesus had to obey, that he had to fulfill all righteousness, that through one act of righteousness, the many uh, were made righteous. Romans chapter five. So you can't, you cannot muddle those waters and all the proposals that are out there that undermine those simple covenantal administrations are, are disastrous. And so we'll have to dive into that kind of stuff as well. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a great one to unpack. Let's move forward to pilgrim theology and, and culture. We were talking about this a little bit, talking about it in first Peter as it relates to apologia and, and others. Can you kind of dive a little bit deeper in here and, and unpack where we're going to head in this direction? Yeah, I mean, pilgrim theology is very important to me. Um, we have to talk about it and we got to talk about it carefully because uh, pilgrim theology uh, can be misunderstood as much as it can be uh, taught and preached on. Uh, some people that look at pilgrim theology they think that what reformed people are saying is that we should check out of this world or not care about this world or not engage in any of the cultural wars that are going on in this world, uh, which is false. So I think the most accurate way to talk about this is to talk about distinctly a engaged pilgrim theology. And, um, and so when we think about pilgrim theology, we are thinking specifically at the fact that in the book of Hebrews, we are told that the saints, you know, Hebrews 11, which is Hebrews 11 is all about, uh, you know, the way that God uh, is sort of uh, structuring the, the ultimate goal and trajectory and the eschatological vision of his people. And that they're supposed to identify as pilgrims in the wilderness of this world. So that what happened in the Exodus event for the author of Hebrews becomes paradigmatic. It's a pattern or a paradigm of the total Christian life and how God is moving us from wilderness to Canaan. He is taking us out of the wilderness of sin and he's putting us into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Now, other proposals will object to this and say, yeah, but that Canaan, that age to come, that, uh, that land flowing with milk and honey, that already began because we're already a new creation, according to Paul. Let's say 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? We already, book of Hebrews tells us, we're already tasting of the powers of the age to come. That's what he says. But there, Hebrews is referring to the Holy Spirit working in us okay and so yes through our union with christ we participate of the age to come but that is strictly at the redemptive level okay but what god is promising his people is not just at the redemptive level the spiritual mystical union that we have with jesus christ he is promising us to be fellow heirs with christ and that Abraham, for example, in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, 
He is the heir of the world. And so Abraham's original promised reward is not just that he would inherit the physical land of Canaan, but that he would inherit the cosmic order. And so remember, God tells Abraham, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west, look in every direction. God tells him, look up to the skies, look at the stars above, look at the sand of the sea. And he says, in every direction that you look, everywhere where your feet step, I will give this land to you. And so by looking in this omnidirectional fashion, God was typifying, signifying, and prefiguring that Abraham would, in fact, inherit something on a cosmic level. That's not down here, uh, Ryan. That's not on this earth. That is the new creation. That is the earth, the heavens, and the earth to come. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews is telling us. And so uh, pilgrim theology, very, very important, because then that really helps us understand and interpret what's going on in the culture around us. And it's not that we don't engage the culture around us, but we're not pointing people to better legislation. (laughs) We're pointing people to a higher form of life. Because here's the problem. I don't care how much you legislate things in this life. You're going to die. And you're not going to be on this earth very long. And so if all we're doing is hoping according to the things of this world, that hope is really not hope. And, uh, and, and, and very clearly there in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that those who have a pilgrim hope, what does it say? God is not ashamed to be called their God. So pilgrim theology, man, really important. Yeah, we're in a we're in a sinful world, right? So just on the legislation front, you're always going to have the problem of sin. No matter how good that legislation gets, if sin is present, there's there's problems. And we're strangers, we're aliens to that old way in ourselves, despite how often or frequently we can fail. So I, I see the theme that you're trying to to draw out there. I'm I'm oversimplifying what you just said, but but I but I get the gist no, of that's it, good. and I mm-hmm. I think what uh, I think as we unpack that in in other episodes and really dive into some scriptural references as well, others will, will kind of gain that same confidence to um, to really take it and apply it and share it and be able to discuss it out in the world. The the culture is wild, right? It's it's a it's a wild environment out there, and. Uh, we are, we are pilgrims in, in the wild, in the wilderness. Uh, I remember when you first okay. explained it to me like that, that was a, uh, a very edifying conversation. So we've covered our main themes. Let me just recap them really quickly here. Cause I want to touch on a few other things before we end our first episode, but to recap the four major pillars and how they go together, it was apologetics and evangelism. That's our first pillar. We'll, we'll be talking more about that. The second pillar was biblical theology and eschatology. The third pillar was Reformed theology and covenant theology. And the fourth pillar is what we just discussed, pilgrim theology and culture. Those will kind of be, would you, would you say, Emilio, the, the driving you know, foundational pillars there? And then we have additional subtopics, which I have listed out right here. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's, you know, that, that really is the identity of Red Grace Media. And everything I've ever tried to do is under the rubric of those things. We think about apologetics and evangelism. We want to advance the apologetics uh, of 
of a Vantilian approach to apologetics. Um, Bonson has obviously a lot of good to teach us, I think, methodologically, right? As we try to untangle arguments and philosophical categories and, and, and try to um, show people the foolishness of unbelief. Van Til, however, is more programmatic because he is theologically bound. Everything he does is situated in theology. Okay. Um, uh, and, and so we, we, we have to draw out more, much more of a Vantilian approach to things. And, uh, and also biblical theology. I mean, this is what makes all of scripture Christian scripture. All of the scripture uh, is, a, is not only for us, but all of scripture is Christocentric. It's all about Christ and his kingdom. Uh, and then Reformed theology, of course, brother, is just to say that the very best of theology, period, the best of theology, as you look at the shelf of theology, and up there you have Thomism, and you have Bardianism, and you have, you know, things like uh, the new perspective on Paul, and you have things like, you know, whatever, you know, uh, different, different the process theology, and you have liberalism and, and all these options on the table. And what we're saying is, right, that more than evangelicalism, we need reformed theology. And so there is a reformed path. You know, it's what I'm going to talk to Dr. Tipton about when we get there. So I, I coined this phrase based on the book that he wrote that's yet to come out. It should be out in August sometime on the Trinity. But there's a reformed path that leads us to the purity of the doctrine on things like the doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity. We want to be on that path. And so that's what I'm saying. You know, and then Pilgrim theology, of mm -hmm. course, uh, is kind of an overarching worldview as well, because it helps us interpret our lives in this world. And um, you can just see Pilgrim theology all over the, the Bible, just everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, and how does that how does that impact things like culture? How does that impact things like, um, you know, how 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 should we view the state? How should we view the culture? How should we view civil law? How should we view the arts? How should we view entertainment? How should we view uh, the educational system, the political system? How should we view all of these things? You know, a theonomy approach to all of those things would say, well, all of those things will inevitably fall to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because he'll put every enemy under his feet. That means that America will be under his feet and Planned Parenthood will be under his feet and the UN will be under his feet and China and Russia and globalism and everything will be under his feet, right? And what they're talking about is a geophysical understanding of that, what I believe is ultimately hyper lordship, right? Which is a lordship that it just, it, I think it is not apostolic. I just don't think it's biblical. Uh, and I think it leads to an exaggerated eschatology, a hyper eschatology. And therefore you find yourself in all sorts of conundrums uh, in scripture that just don't, don't make any sense, you know, to me. And so we, we want to try to, um, we want to try to advance a different option uh, on those issues. Amazing. There's two more topics that you mentioned already a little bit, but I want to touch on them a little bit deeper because 
they've been ongoing discussions that you've started to have with others, specifically the doctrine of God and the Trinity. And let's start with the doctrine of God. I know there's there's multiple conversations that are happening in this in in the world of Christianity. You've kind of been tackling it and staying at the forefront of it. What are you learning? What are you hearing? What's problematic? And let's flesh out some of those themes here. Well, just to be really clear. Um, I'm not claiming to be a theologian. I'm not, I'm not claiming to be a scholar of any kind. Uh, I'm claiming to be someone who is trying to set forth truth in front of people, trying to direct others to where I think uh, the more faithful position on things like the doctrine of God is to be found and to give people uh, a healthy reformed alternative uh, to different proposals that are out there, like Thomism, for example, the theology of Thomas Aquinas which is ultimately rooted in a deeper Catholic conception of, of nature and revelation and eschatology and all of those things, which that takes a lot of untangling in and of itself. But yeah, man, like when it comes to the doctrine of God, I'm very burdened in, in, in what has kind of surfaced in the evangelical and reformed world as as a hyper relational theology and i think that what that is ryan is a bringing god down to our level and a refusal to confess the transcendent god of scripture that is outside of us beyond us he is other than us um that the God of scripture is in a category of his own, that the God of scripture is identical with his essence, with his being, with his attributes, that his attributes in a sense are essential and or identical with his essence. Um, there was a book that was written by James Dozal called All That Is In God. And I agree with the basic thrust of that book. All that is in God is God. That's it. There's no residue. There's no leftover. There's no remainder. All that is in God is God and nothing else, nothing more, right? And so uh, God doesn't have any sort of variation in his being. He doesn't have any potential in his being. God cannot become something that he isn't already. God doesn't enter into a new relationship. Furthermore, God does not respond to us. God is not emotionally aroused like we are. You're getting to, you're, you're kind of getting a feel for what scripture talks about when it says, when God says, I am not a man, <laughs> right? That God is not a human being. He is not the creature. He is the creator. And so we must understand the proper relationship of the creator and creature and the proper distinction between the creator and the, and the creature as well. And so doctrine of God issues here, we're talking about being careful to avoid what Cornelius Van Til called all forms of correlativism or mutualism. And that is this idea, Ryan, that people enter into an interdependent relationship with God, that God becomes just as dependent on creation as creation is of God. And that's called panantheism, not pantheism, but panantheism, which is that God uh, creates a space for creation to operate in, right? And he is sort of subject to creation as much as creation is subject to him. It's really wild. I mean, it's a species of process mm -hmm. theology. It's nothing new, brother. It's nothing new. 
But what I'm saying yeah. is the doctrine of God, we have to really advance the doctrine of God um, from a, a, a more faithful reformed perspective. And a lot of books have been written on this and we'll talk about them, but the Trinity is another one that I think, you know, there was, there was a lot of controversy in recent years about uh, the nature of the, of the Trinity. And particularly when we talk about things like subordinationism, is there any hierarchy in the being of God? Is the father somehow greater than the son in any way? Is the father primary? Is the father ontologically? We're talking here, Ryan, we're not talking here about scriptures of Jesus in incarnate form as the God man saying the father is greater than I. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the interior essence of God. And what is the nature, as much as we can, without violating the principles of scripture, what is the nature of that essence in relationship to its subsistence, which are the persons? Okay. And I know that's kind of getting way, way, way ahead of ourselves, but you know, welcome to Red Grace Media. <laughs> welcome to Christ. Welcome to Christ and Kingdom, right? I mean, that's what we're going to get into because we have to, because if not, if left unchecked, if we don't, if we don't start voicing some of these things, then what we're going to have in the end, we're going to have either subordination proposals, subordinationist proposals, or a species of subordinationism that says that the son is somehow ontologically subordinate to the father. <laughs> well, then that erodes the principle of equal ultimacy, that in God, oneness and threeness are equally ultimate. And furthermore, that undermines the idea of the Son as divine. Because we have to ask the question then, if the Son is divine, does he possess aseity? And does he possess aseity, meaning that, that, uh, that the Son is just as independent and self-sufficient as the Father? See, and then people would say, no, some people would say, no, the son is totally dependent on the father at a certain point. So we have to separate what goes on in the relations, processions and missions of God and what we're talking about in terms of a proper grammar of the essence of God. Big stuff, brother, that needs to be, I think, um, that, you know, that I want to talk about on this program. So. Mm -hmm. Just a real basic question on the whole mutualism argument and God learning from us and us learning from him. Why does it get overcomplicated? Because it seems, I think this is in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, your ways. And then if you compare that with, I think it's in Micah, where the Lord says, because I don't change, you're not destroyed, right? Or uh, maybe I'm butchering the, the, the Malachi, there, Malachi. Yeah, it's Malachi. 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 But because I don't change, so those two together, why is that not enough to just the argument's done and we can move on now to, to studying oh. other things? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great question, Ryan. The reason why, brother, is because what I mentioned in terms of hyper-relational theology, mm -hmm. we, we want, and, and, and ever since, you know, the ancient liberals <laughs> tried this, right, we, we, we want a God that relates to us this is the way because mm. what, what we're what they're saying is we don't have a good religion if we don't have a god that's involved all right. we have is de we, we, then that's kind of a deistic approach to religion a god that is detached 
he's so beyond us that he's just not even involved right that's um yeah and, and that would be right if that were the case you see and so the reason why mutualism is a problem in the first place is because of man's insistence that in order for God to be meaningfully involved in our lives, he has to be like us in some way. And so uh, that's part of the reason why. The other reason why is that we have, we have twisted the anthropomorphic language of the Bible and we have insisted that that anthropomorphic language of the Bible, God became angry, uh, God, you know, God's anger waxed hot, you know, that, uh, you know, God relented, he repented, he changed his mind, you know, these kinds of things, right? God pitied someone or had compassion on someone, uh, that these anthropomorphic ways of talking about God are then read back into the essence of who God is. And there, is where God then becomes a potent God, a God who has the potential, in other words, of becoming something other than what he always has been. And so it is those tendencies of a, of a, of a, a false use of anthropomorphic language and of an insistence that God be in some mutual relationship to us or else we don't have a meaningful spirituality. We don't have a meaningful relationship with God. So those are the ways that, give rise to mutualism understood that sounds good okay we've covered we've we've almost went too deep into our basic topics which is great that that, as you said before expect it all of it will be unpacked and we'll continue to unpack as long as we need to that means if one episode needs to be two or three episodes i know you're always up for it so i think that's people will find that encouraged just know we're not going to breeze over a topic and uh, we'll go as deep as we possibly can. That's the desire here, right? Take the current issues of the world, the today's culture sure. and what's happening in the American church. How are they connected? Where, it, where all of these different themes are being drawn out? Um, everything from reform theology to biblical theology to everything we discussed here. And that's the idea of this podcast. It's, it's meant to take you deeper and, and, that area. And I think one thing that people can do in between episodes to get a feel for this is really head over to the Red Grace Media YouTube channel, look at what you did in Christ and Kingdom, the video series, but also look at what you did with the new apologetics, that video series, because you're covering a wide range of topics there. And I think that gives a good feel as to what you can expect here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the new apologetics, for example, there's a lot of stuff I talk about there that no one's talking about yet, because I've looked around. I've asked people, um, you know, what people are doing about subjects like futurism, transhumanism, technological singularity, globalism, pluralism, the emergence of Eastern paganism, and those kinds of things. Uh, So thankful for Peter Jones and the work that he has done to really, really sound the alarm on that. He's been doing that forever. But uh, but Peter Jones, um, I tell you what, I I read Peter Jones's book for the first time. Uh, uh, My friend Joseph uh, told me about Peter Jones for the first time. And I, I picked up his book, The Other Worldview, and I couldn't put it down. You know, it's just it's just such an eye-opening experience to understand the influence of pagan thought, the importance of Carl Jung. I mean, so much. And, um, and that has led me, you know, into a study. Because honestly, Ryan, you know, hopefully you're learning this about me and hopefully other people detect this too. But I, I just, I don't want all this reform theology for me to just be theoretical. I mean, 
I, I, eschatology, okay, um, biblical theology, this is the answer to transhumanism. It is. Uh, what is the answer to the emerging transhumanist antichrist system that is coming, that is being uh, that is being uh, built right now that we see all around us that everybody kind of knows but doesn't want to admit it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But here it is. I mean, these forces are out there. It's coming. Everyone sees it. Nobody quite knows what to do about it. We see the globalist agenda. We see the we see the crazy Marxist agenda to reduce everything to sameness. That's what's behind the LGBT stuff. That's what be, that's what's behind CRT. That's what's be, so people are looking at a dam full of cracks and things are spouting out crt you know uh, black lives matter you know all this stuff lgbtq rights trans rights you know the stuff but what's behind the dam i believe is not poor politics let me say that again it's not poor politics and it's not even evil dictators What's behind the dam is an antichrist spirit that scripture has identified as the as congruent coextensive with the present evil age. And if you look at Ephesians chapter two, verses one and two, coextensive with the spirit, the spirit of the age are the sons of disobedience. And so the sons of disobedience will be here as long as the spirit of this age is here. And so what is behind it all, brother, is an antichrist spirit that will metastasize until the age is over, until Christ comes, returns, destroys his enemies, puts every enemy under his feet, and establishes his everlasting kingdom. So I don't know. I mean, so I, I'm just excited to talk about all this stuff. I mean, I think you perfectly are ending this episode, which teases up for episode two, which is the importance of theology, why it matters, how you can begin studying it at a deeper level and really be able to apply it. So we're going to end this episode. Thank you, Pastor Ramos, for diving in, answering these questions and looking forward to unpacking in future episodes. And if you're a new listener, please subscribe for more episodes and get ready for episode two, in which we'll cover why theology matters. Thanks again for joining us. And thank you, Pastor Ramos, for joining us. Amen.